This week on the show, we are looking at building your own FreeBSD-based NAS and what's involved in that, writing a device driver for Unix version 6, EC2 work that Colin Percival has been up to, Backoff's release of the TwinCat BSD hypervisor, writing a NetBSD kernel module, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 453. TwinCat BSD Hypervisor, recorded on April 20th, 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for the truly paranoid people. And the BSD Now Patreon might be of interest to you if you want to support this show in a small donation or removing ads or something. There's a couple of options for you to support this show and we appreciate if you do so. Hello, I'm your host Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome. A fresh week, a new headline uh, waiting for us to be read. And this one is about building your own FreeBSD-based network-attached storage over at Clara Systems. Yeah, so Drew wrote this one. It's about, um, it's first of a four-part series on building your own NAS using FreeBSD. So this first section covers selecting the storage hardware. And, you know, what kind of drives, what kind of drive interface you're going to use, and how you put all that together. And then the second one will be about uh, what it would be like to, to, why you might build it using vanilla FreeBSD instead of a NAS distribution like TrueNAS or something or Zygma NAS. Um, and, you know, a bit of discussing how to actually do that. Then the third part, we'll get into the nitty gritty of actually configuring NFS and Samba and iSCSI shares and so on. And the last one is more about maintenance and monitoring and keep it going after you get it set up. So kicking off with hardware. You know, how do you balance your budget and your hardware choices? Uh, what are the options for hardware? You know, do you want to use just SATA drives? Do you want SAS drive? Do you want NVMe? Do you want a controller that can do SAS and SATA, but will be able to upgrade for NVMe in the future? Or is that just overpaying for it now where you can just swap out the controller later and all that? So it explains what the different types are, what the advantages are, uh, and, you know, why you might decide to switch from SAS to NVMe. What are the different NVMe form factors? Since most of us have probably only encountered NVMe as the little like M2 things you put in a laptop or a desktop. Um, but you know, on a server, you're looking at like U.2, and there's like the ruler shaped ones and the normal like hard drive shaped ones, and it's all kinds of different. And we talk a little bit about uh, dual porting and high availability and how to do that uh, for the different versions, and then building out the actual chassis and so on. Hmm. This is quite comprehensive. Yeah. Not missing a single thing in your considerations. And you, know, uh, if this all seems like a bit much for you, then remember you can uh, reach out to Clara Systems and uh, we can help you build it correctly. Yes, if you don't want to deal with all the nitty gritty bits and pieces and you just want to have a certain system with a certain amount of memory, a certain type of speed or yeah. a certain and configuration. If you don't know what the amount of memory you're going to want is, uh, then just call the experts. Yeah. So they can make you, uh, help you in your decision making or build you such a system to just uh, switch on and be happy with. Excellent. Then we found a writing a device driver for Unix version 6 article. Uh, this has been a while um, since it's been around, uh, 1975 to be exact. But well, drivers are drivers and could be interesting for people um, who want to know 
how to do how they did that way back when. Yeah. So basically, with this driver, they've created a a special file in slash dev called MB or message box, and if you echo something to it, it actually pops up as a GUI message box. And it says, you know, that can be useful. Since Unix v6 runs on the PDF 11, and I don't have access to one of those, uh, here they're running all under SimH, which is like uh, QMU, but for old computers. Uh, and it can emulate, you know, an IBM 1401 or an Altair 8800 or a PDF 11. And it kind of talks about, you know, Unix v6 was developed in 1975 for the PDF 11. By this version, most of the code was written in C and only a couple of hundred assembly code bits were remaining. Although, you know, many of the utilities that are common on today's uh, Unix systems like CP, RM, BC, DC, Cron, DD, CHMOD, LS, etc. Um, the OS is very powerful. It had memory management, multiple users, and preemptive multitasking. Uh, so it's a bit funny to see how many of these features arrived only in the 90s for every other type of personal computer whereas they've been in these mini computers for decades. Uh, the choice of using Unix v6 is motivated by two main factors here. First, it was written mostly in C, so that's about the earliest version you really want to dig into. And second, there exists uh, tons of documentation in the kernel code, such as John Lyon's commentary on Unix 6 edition, which is a, thoroughly, a thorough description of the inner workings of all of it. So then they get into how they actually implemented it. They made a character buffer, and then, you know, when uh something is written to this device um they are able to go and read it and look for the new line and decide to display the message and how to make all that work mm -hmm. and then you go up and setting up the, the various bits for it and get it to working and then when they uh write the character you get the text and the pop-up mm -hmm. yeah this is this is useful this can be a, this could be in any Unix system today. <laughs> Just give me something on the screen. So yeah, the, the details uh, you can follow along in the uh, show notes. And uh, next up we have a more of a summary of work that uh, Colin Percival did in his FreeBSD EC2 work, which sometimes is a little bit not in the front matter of uh, the news, but it's definitely uh, work that's uh, useful and appreciated. So Colin writes about what he's doing in this space. Uh, he realized recently there has been little awareness of the work which goes into keeping FreeBSD working on Amazon EC2. So for that matter, I often have trouble remembering what I've been fixing. And as an experiment, I'm going to start trying to record my work both for public consumption and to help myself. I might end up posting monthly, but to start with, I'm going to report on what I've been done since January through March of 2022. Yeah, so the first quarter. Yeah. Uh, so let's go to January. Uh, he committed code that he started working on four and a half years earlier, so which speeds up the x86 boot process, including EC2, by roughly two seconds. And that is highly appreciated because a lot of people will find that their systems boot much faster when the new release comes out. Yeah. So he's kind of buried in the lead there a bit that, you know, over the last four and a half years, he's made a whole bunch of commits and got the boot time of FreeBSD in EC2 down to much less than half of what it was originally is just you know one of the stickier bits of that uh, that shaves off two seconds just finally landed in january uh but you know in total i think he's reduced the boot time by over 15 seconds in total yeah 
Then he worked uh, with a few other FreeBSD developers to help fix the QEMU breakage, which was preventing EC2 RM64 images from building, and reported benchmarking results to Amazon, which helped them fix a performance issue with their EFI boot code. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, because EFI should have been faster, but wasn't always in that case, and he found why using his benchmarks and was able to get Amazon to fix it on their side. Mm-hmm. And he uh, kicked the LightSail team about updating the FreeBSD images. Okay. That's yeah, so LightSail is, is Amazon's kind of competitor to something like DigitalOcean. Ah. Uh, mm-hmm. Smaller VMs that you would leave on all the time priced more like that rather than, you know, their giant instance types. Mm. And they can spin and, up the uh, instance. They, they released it with support for FreeBSD, but then had never had newer FreeBSD versions available. And so Colin kicked oh. them to start updating their versions of FreeBSD they offer. Okay. Then in February of 2022, he continued kicking the LightSail team about updating the FreeBSD images. Oh, that keeps uh, seems to be a regular kick each month. Um, he handled out the AWS credit codes to FreeBSD developers uh, from his AWS Hero quota and liaisoned, uh, or liaised with the Amazon developer working on fixing the hot plug in ARM64. And the work is not ready for commit yet, but maybe in the future. Uh, he committed a patch, uh, not bound by him, although he helped to review it for obtaining entropy from EFI in the bootloader and passing it to the kernel, which ensures that ARM64 EC2 instances have enough entropy for key generation when they first boot. Okay. Important, because you don't want to spend a whole bunch of time waiting for enough entropy to generate SSH key, host key, the first time your EC2 instance boots. Yeah, this should be uh, quick and still cryptographically secure enough. And also, he'd helped to debug more breakage affecting the release engineering AMI builds, as well as updating the EC2 boot scripts to fix the formatting of the SSH host key, which had been broken by changes in the logger utility. Okay. In March, you guessed it, the LightSail finally updated to FreeBSD 12.3. He encouraged them, so less kicking there, uh, to add a FreeBSD 13 offering as well. Um, yeah, considering uh, 13.1 will be out in a couple of weeks or might actually even be out by the time this airs. Yeah, could very well be. They're in the final release candidates. Um, next, he investigated a bug report concerning encrypted EBS volumes. It seems that uh, it is an AWS bug and he convinced Amazonians to investigate. Yeah, I saw something about that on Twitter that they're looking at something and he's saying, see, I told you. Mm, this is it. Uh, I closed the bug report concerning clock stability on T3 family instances, and it resulted from an AWS bug, which I have been told has now been fixed. Good. Uh, he fixed the glitch in the release engineering build process, which was resulting in 13.1 beta AMIs not being registered in the systems manager parameter store. Which I think is how you can ask Amazon, what's the latest version of FreeBSD 13.1 uh, to build an image out of? It's especially used for betas and things like the snapshots. So that, for example, the CI system for OpenZFS can ask Amazon, what's the newest snapshot of FreeBSD 14 you have, rather than having to you know, go in there and manually change the AMI ID every week. Mm. Oh, yeah. Good. Uh, and he also wrote a patch to fix the console on EC2 ARM64 instances, currently pending review. And he notes in the bottom section, in addition to the above, I have regular conference calls with Amazon and sometimes work on things which are ND8, well, unreleased instance types, for example. For obvious reasons, he's not going to write about those. And you can support work from Colin in this space by his FreeBSD EC2 Patreon page. Great work, Colin. Thank you. And we look forward to more. Next up, 
in the news roundup. Here is great stuff from Backup happening. Well, not Backup, Backhoff, sorry. Backhoff has released its TwinCat BSD hypervisor. What's this about? Uh, so yeah, Backhoff's been doing a bunch of work to, uh, on Beehive as because they're using it in their appliance now as they make the TwinCat slash BSD hypervisor. Uh, which allows the simultaneous execution of virtual machines and the TwinCat real-time applications in an industrial PC. Uh, the optimized hypervisor integration in TwinCat BSD plus matching configurations of Beckhoff hardware and software provide maximum performance for VMs while maintaining TwinCat's real-time priority for automation. Cool. Uh, basically, because VMs allow different operating systems to run on one PC, users can take advantage of the features of each different operating system. Backup claims this capability of VMs enables users to enhance their security properties of the overall system by operating user environments in a modular and isolated manner with the TwinCat BSD hypervisor. Uh, for example, TwinCat real-time applications can operate separately from a Windows desktop environment uh, for machines operating on the industrial PC, while the Windows operating only happens in the environment or in the VM uh, and is not just the host. Uh, you know, if Windows restarts to do a software update, for example, it won't interrupt all the uh, machine control executions that are happening in real time on the TwinCat part of the OS. Uh. Um, in particular, uh, Backoff's been working on device pass-through features, uh, so allowing GPU and USB ports and network interfaces to be passed into the virtual machines from the host, which I know is something everybody that uses Beehive is very interested in. Oh, yeah. And there's uh, some video from a conference at uh, Modex 2020 uh, where they're showing off this uh, BSD hypervisor. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, these you would typically find in an industry setting, in a, like a production floor or uh, not in the, you know, mainstream computer store. But BSD? Yeah, like I remember seeing systems like this uh, at the power plant that I worked at. Uh, and, you know, they had to adjust inputs and valves and control everything and you know automatically respond if pressure got too high and things like that and so you know doesn't work if uh, windows updates decides to reboot the machine uh so being able to put those parts of the workload in a vm and have the real-time part uh still sit there and run and respond with very low latency is important yeah to keep the systems running and uh no one noticing it Excellent. If you've been interested in writing a device driver for Unix version 6, then you will also be interested in a more modern version, writing a NetBSD kernel module for current versions. And this is what this next article uh, is about. Yeah, so kernel modules are object files used to extend the operating system functionality at runtime. So basically, load new kernel functionality whenever you feel like it. In this post, we'll look at implementing a simple character device driver as a kernel module in NetBSD. Once it's loaded, the user-safe processes are able to write an arbitrary byte string to the device, and each successive read uh, expect a cryptographically secure pseudo-random permutation of the original byte string. Before we begin, we compile a kernel module, or compiling a kernel module requires that you have all the source code in user slash SRC, and there's a link to their documentation on how to do that. Uh, usually, most user-space interfaces to character or block devices are through special files that live in slash dev, uh, so they have to manually create that with mknod, whereas on FreeBSD, uh, devfs will create these automatically. Uh, and so they run mknod dev slash rperm, then the character c, the number 420, and then the number 0. In this case, the c indicates that this is a character device. The 420 is just the device's major number. 
uh, which is just each device has one. It's kind of like an inode number for dev. And uh, zero indicates the minor number. Uh, the minor, or sorry, the major number is used by the kernel to uniquely identify each device. And the minor number is usually used uh, internally by device drivers, uh, but we're not gonna really bother with it in this case. Our device driver will specifically implement the open, read, write, and close IO methods. So to register these, we implement them uh, with the cdev sw struct. Uh, and you can see how all that works in the example code. As we can see, there are plenty of functions we won't be implementing. Uh, so, you know, it's just got, it's got no IOCTL. So you can't do IOCTLs against this device and so on. Every kernel module is required to define its metadata through the C macro module in all uppercase, defining its class, name, and what's required. Uh, since our module's device driver, we'll call it rperm and won't require another module being preloaded. So we set the requirements to null. So we do a module class driver, the device name, and null for the requirements. And then uh, you have to implement the mod CMD uh, function. And this deals with uh, initialization and cleanup, basically attach and detach when you make the device. Uh, and then we can have uh, a soft C, which is internal state uh, that the device is going to have. And then we implement the you know open, close, uh, read and write methods uh, and what those are going to do and deals with kernel memory allocation and so on. And it's got examples. And we can see that, you know, when you read from it, it's going to go through the buffer in the soft C from when you wrote to it uh, and randomize uh, the content and then spit it back out. Okay, interesting. And it shows a basic example of how to do that. There's a similar page in the FreeBSD developer's handbook on uh, making your first kernel module in FreeBSD as well, if you're interested. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So you can do the similar thing on NetBSD or compare the two even and see what's different or what's the same. Very nice. So we have hopefully a couple more people interested in kernel development this way. And the next parts are labeled by our show producer, Benedict's Git Finds because I typically send him a couple of things uh, to put into the show in the future and he kind of collected them all here. The first one is run anything like a full-blown GTK application under Capsicum. This is a Capsicumizer, not just anyone, but the <clears throat> super Capsicumizer 9000. <laughs> that yeah, so this uses basically lib preopen, uh, which is a, a concept for Capsicum. So with Capsicum, once you enter the sandbox, you cannot open anything new except for relative to file descriptors you already have so the idea is that you know you can open a directory before you enter the sandbox and you'll be able to access what's in that directory but you can't access any new files by their full path once you're in the sandbox you can't access any global namespaces you can only do things relative to things you already have access to uh, so you know you can if you open a directory you'll be able to access the files in it uh, but you won't be able to go explore the whole file system, which is, again, kind of the point, right? If you're going to, say, capsicumize uh, a web browser, when you're in the download part of the code, it would only have access to the download directory, not everything. Uh, so with capsicumizer here, you make a little config file. You tell it, you know, here's the command I actually want to run. In their example, it's gedit. And then they have a configured array of paths that it should pre-open so that you'll have access to those, like your home directory, fardb font config, and slash tmp. Uh, the library directories, all the libraries you might need to be able to load. Uh, and then it also has 
uh, now the preload section for libraries that we might need to specifically load. Uh, you know, it says, in this case, gedit doesn't require any of these. It's just one they put in there as an example. And now when you use uh, Capsicumizer to run this, it will pre-open those file descriptors. And then when it opens gedit, uh, it'll basically intercept any attempt for gedit to open a file and we'll remap that into the sandboxed, uh, you know, relative to these pre-opened file descriptors or directory descriptors so that uh, gedit will work even though normally it would break when it, if the application wasn't designed to know about Capsicum. This basically allows it to uh, work from the outside uh, and trick the application into working within the sandbox. Hmm. Yeah, that's why I found it interesting to mention. Yeah. And if you think you've seen it all, then there's someone else coming along with a Twitter client, but for UEFI. Uh, this is this next one, and it's exactly what it says. A Twitter client from the UEFI console, where you normally configure your system booting, but you can also tweet from that, apparently, with this software. Yeah, so basically, instead of running the FreeBSD bootloader as a, a UEFI binary, you could run this Twitter client. Yeah. Uh, so you compile it with your secrets, your consumer key and secret key, and your access token and secret. Uh, and compile it and you put this in your ESP and then, you know, in your boot menu, you just like, I can start FreeBSD or I can start the the firmware menu or I can start the EFI shell or I can start this Twitter client and go and read Twitter <laughs> on the console. <laughs> yeah, and the choice is yours, but it's possible. And uh... Yeah, so basically <laughs> uh, the UEFI standard itself includes an HTTP protocol stack uh, so that, you know, each program doesn't have to build a whole HTTP client into it. It can just call that service from the UFI uh, firmware. And so then it's just, you know, making those HTTP connections and doing mm. stuff. Yeah, so this is uh, in the fun department. This next one will be a bit more useful, uh, although it's a bit unorthodox. A terminal file manager, it's called N squared. N cubed. N cubed even. Ah, oh, sorry, N, N, N. Uh... It's a full-featured terminal file manager. It's tiny, nearly zero-config, and incredibly fast. Designed to be unobtrusive, it's small workloads to match the trains of thought. And it can analyze the disk usage, batch rename, launch applications, and pick files. Uh, there's a plugin repository that has tons of plugins to extend the capabilities further, like live previews, unmounting disks or mounting them, finding and listing, uh, file and directory diffs, uploading of files, etc. There's a patch framework uh, that hosts sizable user-submitted patches, which are subjective in nature. And wow, it has a long list of features. There's a little quick start video. Uh, and why not give it a shot and try out your luck with this terminal file manager if you haven't gotten into the midnight commanders or other <laughs> managers like that. Yeah, it does look kind of cool and uh, very much... Up my alley, where it's very you know disk IO sensitive, it's not going to do a bunch of extra reads and writes just to display some information I might want. Uh, that was going to end up making it slower and so on. Mm -hmm. But also like the the bulk rename or batch rename feature and so on, I imagine could be quite useful. Yeah, and so uh, it's more more useful than <laughs> maybe tweeting from the UFI console. But well, that's your choice. Next up is the OpenVI uh, version. It's a portable OpenBSD VI for Unix systems. So yet another VI implementation, but uh, it's uh, enhanced and portable uh, with the uh, based on the Berkeley VI X text editor originally developed by Bill Joy. 
And that is a fork of the VIX editor included with OpenBSD, which is of course the version 1.79 of the NVI editor, originally distributed as part of the fourth Berkeley software distribution. And then there's the why part. Why would you want to use OpenVI instead of another VI? So this is from the OpenBSD's code base, which is focusing on readability, simplicity, and correctness of the implementation. Uh, it has clean source code distributed under a permissive three-clause BSD license. It's mostly conforming to relevant standards. Extensions are there like uh, BSERAs, expand tab, IAM control, visible tab, and others. Uh, builds required only new make and standard POSIX utilities. There's no compile time or build time configuration options. Consistent user interface, script and map behavior across all platforms and uses OpenBSD's extended Spencer-based regular expression engine. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so try it out if you haven't picked a proper <laughs> VI version for yours, uh, for your needs. And it's portable. Again, you can run this on multiple systems, and at the bottom they describe how to install it on various operating systems in the Unix space. That's cool. Yeah, next up we have how to get the latest cutting-edge NVIDIA drivers on FreeBSD. Uh, so NVIDIA has a newer driver version out that's not quite in ports yet because uh, it's still very new. Um, but this has some step-by-step -step instructions on how to get it going now. Uh, so the first thing you want to do is get rid of the existing driver you have. So unloading the NVIDIA mode set and NVIDIA drivers and deleting the packages. Um, then there's an installation script from NVIDIA you can use. Uh, so go into your home directory, download the latest version, which at the time of this is... 510.54. So download that in uh, FreeBSD tarball from them, uh, extract it, compile it, set it up to be loaded via rc.conf instead of loader.conf. And then when you KLD load it, and uh, you should be able to start X and everything should just work. If you want to set up and test the hardware acceleration, they have uh, showing that installing the libva bits and BDPAU, uh, as well as the Mesa demos and the Vulkan tools and some of the other various tools. There's also talk about how to use it uh, within the Linux Ulator. For example, installing the Linux browser, uh, a Ubuntu browser under FreeBSD in the Linux Ulator, and how to set up the NVIDIA driver for that. Basically expose the Vulkan APIs that way. And it shows how to get all that working uh, and how to actually test that under Ubuntu as well. And uh, with that, you should be able to run the Ubuntu version of Chrome or Brave or Vivaldi or Edge or whatever. Um, but that suggests you would also be able to uh, watch hardware accelerated Netflix on FreeBSD. Oh, yeah. Very nice. Uh, Very nice. Then the next write up is coming from uh, Coops about FreeBSD SSH hardening, and he posted that on uh, Hacker News originally. And Coops is basically doing a lot of work in the Twitter space, promoting FreeBSD and giving sometimes history article lectures in a small tweet form. So this is kind of a, a nice way. And he's helping new users who are having, who are having problems. And this one is about uh, SSH hardening for, for FreeBSD specifically and um, how to make it a bit more difficult for people to hijack your box via SSH. Well, it's, I think it's specifically if you're using ssh-audit.com, uh, to harden a machine. This shows basically the instructions on how to get the best score on FreeBSD. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, first it starts by backing up your SSH config and installing the SSH audit tool and then running it. And now it's going to start making changes. 
for example, remove the older key types like DSA and RSA and uh, ECDSA, uh, and only enable the generation of the ED25519 and RSA keys, uh, remove some of the Diffie-Hellman moduli that are too small, less than basically the 3068 or whatever bits, disabling all the DSA and ECDSA keys with the giant sed command. <laughs> Um, restricting support of which ciphers and uh, key exchange algorithms are supported, and then restarting SSHD and running the audit again, and then being able to compare those uh, and see the results, and even how to undo it if you uh, decide, hey, that means I can't SSH in from such and such old device or whatever. Yeah, up to this point, I wasn't sure that there was an option uh, that you can actually say SSHD underscore ED25519 underscore enable. That's new to me. Uh, so this one is mostly about if that key type will be generated when SSHD starts. Oh, the very the first time. Ah, okay. Yeah, the host key. Right, because otherwise it's like, uh, why do we have this extra option? Cool. Good to know. Yeah, and the rest of the actual, you know, what's accepted or whatever is controlled by the uh, the SSHD config. Very good. Yeah, that uh, gives you a little bit of work over the weekend to harden your SSH systems just to uh, give you something productive. And then we have GTFO bins, which is a curated list of Unix binaries that can be used to bypass local security restrictions in misconfigured systems. So only use this on your own systems to check if they are vulnerable in certain ways and not attack other people. Uh, this project collects legitimate functions of Unix binaries that can be abused to get the <clears throat> yeah, well, hmm. B, break out of restricted shells, escalate or maintain elevated privileges, transfer files, spawn, bind, and reverse uh, shells, and facilitate the other post-exploitation tasks. So be careful with these, not run this uh, in systems that uh, are exposed to the internets. Um, but it's an interesting uh, exercise to see, oh, this binary is vulnerable in this kind of way, or it could be uh, broken in that certain way it's um yeah sometimes a bit scary reading through the list i uh, believe it as it is <laughs> yeah well basically this is interesting here is that it uh you know they have a version of a spell uh that uh you know if the binary has the set uid bit set it does not drop the elevated privileges and may be abused to access uh other parts of the file system or escalate or maintain privilege access as a set uid backdoor if you used uh if it is used to run sh-p, omit the dash p argument on system calls like Debian, that allows the default uh, shell to run with set UID privileges and so on. And it also talks about if the binary is allowed to run as super user by sudo, it does not drop its elevated privileges and may be used to access the file system in other ways. So it's basically showing you how you can uh, abuse different files and tools. For example, if you have the ability to run uh, base64 as root then you can use it to read stuff you shouldn't uh, for example you know you could run base64 on the file that you want to read that you're not supposed to be able to read and then immediately pipe that into base64 decode and now you've just read the file that normally you wouldn't be able to read but because uh, that binary reset your id you can uh, abuse it so it just shows you how you can uh, leverage a bunch of the tools that are typically installed and and which ones you know might be allowed uh, your user might be allowed to do a sudo to get a lot further than you were ever intended to be able to get. Oh, this could be useful in a capture the flag contest where you actually yep. have to exploit systems for po scoring points in the uh, 
competition. Yeah, it's just like, you know, if, if you're able to run, you know, uh, they had a great example here. If you're able to run JQ uh, as root for some reason, then here's how you could abuse it for this or that or the other thing. Or, you know, if it lets you run man, sudo man something, uh, <laughs> then it shows you how you can make your own little man page that actually gives you a shout. Because <laughs> only the super user should be allowed to read man pages. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Uh, moving into our feedback and questions part of this episode, uh, we get always uh, feedback. Sometimes we incorporate it in the next episode. Sometimes it takes a bit of uh, episodes to uh, appear, but we definitely cover everything that we receive. So thanks for everyone who sends feedback to feedback at bsdnow.tv. The first one this week is Ben with a backing up question or feedback. Ben writes, hello, Benedict, Alan, Tom and JT. First of all, I'd like to thank you all for this great podcast. I started to listen in summer 2019 and didn't miss an episode since then. Oh, wow. That, that's a long listen uh, from the very first one. Uh, but I guess you started... Well, in the... Compared to episode 75, <laughs> it's not that long. But yeah, it's, it's, it adds up real uh, quick. Yeah. Okay. With little to no knowledge of Unix, BSD, or any kind of shell, I thought I was it was a good idea to replace my standard NAS with a system that provides ZFS, just to have the best file system for my family photos. I built my own server, installed FreeNAS, and realized very fast that it would have to that I would have to learn a lot. My setup covers uh, now a TrueNAS main server with a backup server at a second location and over 80 terabytes of redundant pool space. Wow. For most listeners, probably peanuts. Wah. But for an amateur system, still not too bad. First jail was for Nextcloud, and at this point, I'd like to thank Samuel Dowling for his great Nextcloud jail documentation. Okay, it helped me a lot to dive into the world of BSD and not just taking the easy way out of using a standard TrueNAS plugin. And through this guide, I got a free reverse proxy on top of it. Later followed more trivial stuff like a Plex server, Vault Garden, Bitwarden, AdGuard, and a Unify controller. Or Unify controller. Great, that's a quite a good setup already. Many smaller and bigger challenges later, I have feedback and questions. Here we go. First, the feedback to the beginning of Alan's story last week or couple weeks before, I ran into the same MAC address problem and had to invest many hours to solve the riddle. With IOCage, I exported, renamed and imported my Nextcloud jail to have a second instance. Both jails were running under different names, but with the same vnet underscore, uh, vnet zero underscore MAC property. With amateur debugging skills, it was hard to figure out why each instance was randomly accessible or not. I hope your story will save people in the future a lot of time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I spent an embarrassing amount of time not realizing what the problem was either. It's like, how are some packets getting through and some aren't? And this is weird. It's, it's yeah, the, the switch was confused. It was like, oh, that MAC address is on port seven. Let me send the packets there. And then the other machine would send something. It's like, oh, that MAC address is now on port, you know, four. Let me send it there instead. And they're deep. <laughs> and it's like, how, do, how does starting this server make that server break? It doesn't make any sense. It feels like an IP conflict, but it's not an IP conflict. And it turns out it was a MAC address. Contract. Yeah, but till you get there, you lose a lot of bushels of hair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I don't have much to lose. Yeah. Um, and now to his question. Since my time and skills are limited, I prefer to use the replication task manager of TrueNAS and send regular snapshots to the backup server. Hey, this is already quite a setup. I had to learn that a non-root backup user needs certain ZFS file system rights to handle the receiving part of the backup server. The initial backup worked always, but all following replications failed since something went wrong with the rights. 
After changing the SSH user to root, as described in the true NAS documentation, it worked. How reasonable is it to have root SSH active? Mm. What are your recommendations to limit the risks coming with such a setup? What is the best secure way of backing up one system to another? Uh, so my advice there is, I imagine it was in two weeks ago episode of BSD Now, uh, or if it's not, it's very new. Um, on the Clara website, we recently just posted an article on how to configure those permissions to do it all as non-root. Um, and so mostly you just have to do the right ZFS allows on that receiving system to give out the permissions that it needs uh, so that your replication can succeed. Uh, and some of that is about uh, mounting and uh, uh, holds and a couple other properties. Uh, another thing you can do is specifically uh, setting the mount point on those backup data sets to none so that it doesn't try to mount them. And that uh, solves the problem of, you know, as a regular user, you can't just mount these random file systems. Uh, and that causes ZFS to give an error or whatever. And you can deal with that by uh, just setting all the mount points to none. Anyway, it's all described in the Clara article recently about doing this ZFS replication without root access. Yep. Because, uh, yeah, in general, you don't want root on the backup machine set up that way because you know allowing root login is something that doesn't normally happen on freebsd is already kind of a, a thing i don't like but the fact that there's a key unencrypted sitting on the hard drive of the first machine that if anybody ever got would give them root on the other machine just feels a bit icky right uh whereas if you can if they do get this set up uh with non-root then you know they're stuck as a user that can do nothing other than receive setup as backups they can't modify the other system at all yeah principle of least privileges yeah uh, but you know if it's inside your network it's maybe not super critical uh but clara just published an article on exactly how to uh, configure this i also put this on the freebsd tips that appears in a standard freebsd sometimes when you log in exactly to remember what kind of permissions are needed so that i can see them and other people um if it pops up at one time you will find it but the clara article is quicker <laughs> to get it uh yeah so thank you and congratulations on your setup thus far it seems like you yes that's that's a very yeah. nice setup Quite good. Um, next is Ethan with a thanks for us. And Ethan writes, Hi, I heard of your call for feedback. Yes, someone did. And decided to write in. I have been listening to the show for a few months now and find it refreshingly different from all the other Unix podcasts I listen to. I just got started in Linux recently and I'm still learning lots. And NetBSD is next on my list of things to try. Thanks for the great podcast and keep up the good work. Thank you. Good luck. Yeah, glad it's useful and you have... Um, bits and pieces that you can use for your future BSD endeavors. That's always good to hear. Then we have Maxi with a question about note-taking. Uh, and that goes, Dear BSD Now team, first I want to thank you very much for your show. Oh, you're welcome. Your podcast accompanies me for almost a year now and it's the only one I'm listening to on a regular basis. Hey, wow, we have no competition in your uh, podcast player. Um, I'm considering... Yeah, although I find... find uh... <laughs> More interesting is just uh, we're still getting new listeners. Which is yeah, that too. It's not all just the you, the people that started listening in like 2014 sticking around. <laughs> Although we like those as well. <laughs> so um, continuing, I'm considering myself a novice BSD user. That's okay. And a lot of topics you've discussed helped me to understand the technology better. I'm feeling a lot more comfortable in BSD land than I ever felt in Linux land. So please keep up your wonderful work. I'm looking forward to every new episode. Okay, here is the fresh one. Uh, since I love to learn new things, I also like to 
keep track or notes along my journey. So my question to you is, if you don't mind answering, uh, what do you use for writing down and saving knowledge? Do you use paper-based solutions or some kind of digital vault or knowledge, such a personal wiki maybe? Yeah. Um, so I keep a lot of notes in just digital files, maybe not organized quite as good as they should be. Uh, and I do use wikis a decent amount. Uh, what I recommend for most people to consider is what Dan Langill does of keeping them as a blog. Uh, mostly just because they're available to other people that way. Um, so what what Dan does is multifold, but the first part is, you know, at the top of the blog post, he captures what his system looked like before he started. That's super important if you run into trouble and want to ask for help, is if you can show this is what it looked like, and then I did this and this, and now it's saying this. Uh, it's much easier to help you if we know where what it looked like before, and then exactly every command you did. Um, sometimes it means you can just look back at it the next day and be like, aha, I see what I was doing wrong. Uh, but also it means that, you know, if you ask for help, you have something to show people. And then, you know, when it does work, it's out there for people to find. Uh, so Dan's done a great job with that. And it's made it it's very easy for me to help him occasionally when he runs into a problem, because I can see exactly what he did and be like, ah, see that one there, you forgot to do this part, uh, or you need to change that value or whatever. Uh, so I'd say my notes are mostly digital. Uh, I do use a wiki, um, but uh, if you just want to make it public, I really recommend like what Dan does uh, on his dan.langill.org or whatever the website is uh, for his blog because uh, it provides the most value to everyone. Uh, it's well organized and easy for him to find with all the tags. He can just be like, uh, I did that thing with ZFS on this machine and you can just select the tags and find that. Uh, so you know, a personal wiki works the same except for maybe isn't as organized for other people to have access easily. But anything like that would be good. Mm. Uh, you know, for work, we keep a lot of stuff in a, a GitLab ah, yes. where we have wikis and mm. so on. Yeah, I use also a lot of digital uh, note-taking, like um, a text file where I dump stuff in when the installation uh, starts and then the commands that I enter to just get an idea how to get it running and working. And then later when those notes become more stable or i can reproduce the notes in there or remove parts that went wrong at certain points then i can distill this into an ansible playbook because then it's automated and runs uh, automatically so i typically keep servers underscore install text files around so i can easier find them um, and I, I i use them very often sometimes coming back to a problem that i solved maybe a year ago and i'm happy to have those notes and um, yeah, definitely keep notes. Some people are more uh, in the physical writing uh, department and then scan it later and do OCR over it. But use what works for you. It's There's no good or bad way. If it works for you, then... Yeah, I think, I think Benedict's advice there is the best, is whatever you're most comfortable with, because it means you'll actually keep the notes. Uh, for me, digital means I don't lose the notes. If I write it on a piece of paper, A, I'm not going to be able to read it later because I have terrible handwriting, and B, it's going to get lost. Uh, so, you know, I put my files on my ZFS NAS and they never get lost ever. Yeah. Full text search is a godsend. <laughs> well, you know, I also am just a little uh, particular about the way I name my files and so on, <laughs> so I usually can, can figure out which one's which yeah. uh, without having to, sort to the, resort to the full text search. But yes, uh, definitely say keep notes, lots and lots of notes. Uh, and even if it's a bit embarrassing, 
uh, putting them online helps so many yes, people so much. Yes, there are probably solutions out there in some person's uh, hard disk that are just exact that solution I'm looking for, but they never published that. So it's kind of lost on me. But uh, I guess one thing I might also recommend is there is the script command. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you run script and then I think a file name is how it works. Uh, it will start your shell, but in a way where everything you type is recorded to a file that you could read back with less, including it'll even play back like the way top redraws the screen and so mm. on. Um, it can make it easier to to take the notes later because it'll actually record every command you ran and what the error messages were. Yeah. Um, you know, I wouldn't use it raw as your notes, but it can help you keep those notes uh, and, and make them after the fact. Yeah, exactly. Other people record video and put it on YouTube, but again, this is more for tutorial style uh, exercises. There's many ways to do this. So yeah, thank you for this question. Uh, hopefully, if you have more questions like this, let us know. Uh, we'll be happy to follow along with your Unix journey. And that pretty much covers this episode for this week. We are done for the day. We thank you for listening, as always. Do we have a last minute announcements, maybe? Uh, nope, just remember to submit for... EuroBSDCon and uh, mm -hmm. have a good week.